The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com.
hoping that by baptizing you in the wilderness and reenacting the Exodus, he's going to bring about all these promises. Well, through all their obedience and through all their adherence, through obeying these 325 laws, they never forced or brought about the promise of God. I think there's a good reminder here that our obedience can never save us. We can never obey enough in order for it to even save us. And today when we come to our passage, we're going to see what does obedience look like on the other side of the cross. Before the cross, they thought we could do enough in order to bring about the Messiah that he would come and save us. And they slowly realized it was only by the grace of God that Messiah could come. And now on the other side of the cross, what's our obedience look like? Do we obey in order to get God's approval? Or do we obey because we are approved by God? And I think that's what we're going to see. What does it look like on that other end of the cross? When people were made new in Christ, what does this obedience look like? You guys want to go ahead and start with me in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has ever been born or who has been born of him. By this we know the love that we love the children of God when we love God the significance? What's the weight of John's argument? He says, if you love God, you obey his commands. And how on earth that is true? Also, we obey his commands because we love God. You cannot be forced obedience when you're a lover of God. The idea that the fact that you can be, um, as, as John MacArthur always says, you can't have Christ as Savior and not as Lord. He must be the Lord of your life if he is your Savior. If you love and put your trust and faith in Christ, it will change you because the Holy Spirit then comes in you and starts producing fruit out of you. It changes the way that you think. When we hear these statements like, if you love God, then you'll obey, sometimes we get a little nervous or get a little uneasy because we're taught things like, if you don't obey, if you don't say by grace, you can say if you're not at work. When we, we hear these things about work, we hear these things about obedience, and we learn from them because we're afraid to say, our salvation involves work, but it does. And then we look to the Reformation period and we hear about everything that was going on in Roman Catholicism. That in order to obey, you had to first you had to uh, obey, you had to do the sacraments in order to be approved by God. And there were other things you could do in order to be approved. You could you could pay your way out of purgatory. And there's a famous uh, saying going on at the time: a coin in a coffer rings a soul out of purgatory springs. They, they were trying to build up St. Peter's Basilica. And they said, if you pay money, we can get people out of purgatory. We can get family members out of purgatory. Or if you come and pray to these bones, we can actually reduce your time in purgatory. So when we hear these things about faith and obedience, we get a little nervous. Because a lot of people think that we're saying we're saved by faith and works. And that is not the case. We're saved by grace through faith. Listen to what Paul says. You are saved by faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. We get a little nervous. But I think what John is trying to show us here is when we start to obey the Lord, when we say He transforms our hearts, when we start to love the things that He loves, when we start to be approved by the things that He loves, when we start to love the lost, Jim Hamilton, who's a professor I previously had, he's a New Testament scholar or biblical theologian at college, he's in Gatlinburg, uh, 
Bible, Old Testament, New, or Marine Corps, we get an illustration of the fact, what does this look like whenever we obey? Why is it that we start to love the law and start to relate to the law and see the things of the law? And when we see the importance of the things of the law, then we obey the sign. So think of it this way. We just have a law in motion in order to relate to our, in obedience to the law, relate to our love to others. So if you have faith in Christ, you love others. We obey the things of, the, uh, of, of God, and it forces us to love others. Why do these things connect? This is what he illustrates. So, for example, the first example he gives is honoring your mother and father. God commands that. If you obey that, first of all, you're honoring the Lord. But why is it, how is this related to our love for others? It teaches us to respect others. If we learn to respect our parents, it naturally relates, and it shows us by obedience to this command, we slowly learn how to be respectful to others, respectful to our parents. We learn what it looks like in our lives, in our lives as believers. Another example he gives, do not steal. God commands this. He's commanded not to do this. Why is it that we don't steal? God commands it. But why does this show us our need to love others? Or how does this relate to our love for others? When we, love, when we don't steal, we see the value of other people's possessions. We care for them and we don't want to harm their possessions. So love for others. When we start loving God and start obeying His commands, we love others. Because these are the things that God cares about. It forces us to care about the things of others. Over and over again, we can use these illustrations. Well, think about this. Do not say the Lord's name in vain. Every single one of us, at some time, we've heard others talking about other people, or we've talked negatively about another person. No one likes it when someone talks negatively about their name, or says their name in a negative context. And thankfully, we don't have people in the church that are gossiping and talking bad back and forth about one another. No one likes that. God commands us not to say His name in vain. Well, as we put our faith and trust in Christ, we slowly start to see... Why is it bad to talk negatively about others? Our obedience to the law, it changes the way that we love others. So are you seeing the significance here? He says, when you obey God, when you love God, you obey His Word. And when you obey His Word, you slowly start to love others. These things connect to one another. He's not just saying, obedience saves you. He's saying, whenever you start to love Jesus, it starts to change the way you look at people. It starts to change the way you treat others. It impacts the way you love people. Previously, you may have thought these things were okay to talk negatively or to look down upon others or to steal things from others, but now we see the value of them. It's been made new in Christ, and now we look at things differently. We love our neighbors. We love our difficult family members differently because we long to obey Christ. Verse 3. For this is true of the love of God, or for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. What's this look like? What's this obedience look like? It would be very easy to, to, for us to think and look at the law and look at how God has commanded us to obedience in this, and think, this is a heavy weight to put upon ourselves. Even Paul says, adding the law back to it in a way of redemption is burdensome. No one can carry that load. It's 
here John tells us that obedience to the law is not Thank you. 
today is the pregnant woman asked to hand him over, John asked to hand over, and the hospital nurse says, bring her back. Then he asked the nurse, yes, confirm her with that. In the name of Redeemer, of Lord, you will soon have done, you will soon be done here. I shall soon be with you, shouting victory, 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 waving her hands forever. Shortly after this, he said, free grace, free grace, free grace. And after making the statement, he fell asleep in Jesus' arms. It was Saturday, January 27, 1842. Chosen to live and die, William Gaffney. In his desk, he found a slip of paper on which he had written his own epitaph. Let this be on my stone today, and truly nothing can be more fitting. So this is what he wanted on his tombstone, and this this is what it said. Here rests the body of a sinner base, who had no patience with a lucky race. The love, blood, life, and righteousness of God was his sweet theme, and this spread abroad. He wanted to know that his victory wasn't his strength, wasn't his wisdom, but it was only the grace of God. That's how we go about ministry. We're not stronger than anyone. Our boast and lay claim in salvation is Jesus. It's his greatness. We cannot do enough. We cannot obey enough. We constantly are pointed back to the sweet grace and the victory that is in Christ Jesus. That's the theme until you die. Victory is King Emmanuel, Redeemer, all Lord. This is He who came by water and in blood, Jesus Christ. John's getting ready to show this is the Lord of Kings. What does He mean by Jesus came in water and in blood? What are these these two different things mean? Well, once again, we we talked about how John would come back and just call Gnostics early thought and uh, brought up the how. What they thought during this time frame was the fact that Jesus wasn't truly God. He was a man. And what they said was, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews, and then Jesus became like God. And then throughout Jesus' life, the way that he was able to do miracles was through the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. Well, then at his crucifixion, Jesus goes up on the cross, and God leaves him. So now it's just a man on a cross. And that's why Jesus says on the cross, Father, Father, why do you forsake me? Because Jesus was left, I mean, God has left Jesus on the cross. The reason they needed this and the reason they thought this was essential, they were wrestling with the fact, how is it that God dies on the cross? How is it that you can kill the God of the universe? Rather than just saying the historic Christian theme that the Son of God died, the Father and the Spirit were still around, the Spirit raises Jesus back to life. They said that Jesus wasn't truly God. So rather than holding to the historic confession of the church, they came up with this idea, and the way that they worked it out was that he wasn't really God. He was just a man. And this man, Jesus, died on the cross, but God did not. And Jesus was just a man, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he becomes like God at his baptism. But look what John says. This is what John is talking about here. This is he who came by water at his baptism, and by blood. So he's 
saying is this historic Jesus is not just the one who was the Holy Spirit comes upon him and makes him God. This is not who he is. This is the eternal Son of God who he already said was from the beginning. Before the world was ever created, the Son of God existed and he was there. He came, he was baptized, and then the Son of God was crucified. God was crucified on the cross. It wasn't just a man. John is saying he came both in water and also in blood. We needed more than just a man to die on the cross. A man couldn't reconcile us back to God. We needed God himself. Only God can redeem us from our sins. Man cannot. We've had many people faithfully obey at times. Many people die for their country, for people, to set them free out of slavery. Those people do not redeem you. Someone dying for you does not save you. Only God can die for you. And that's what John is getting at. He came in water and he also came in blood. Jesus truly was God. Jesus Christ. also crucified. We need the cross. We need the Son of God to die on the cross, to take our sins upon us. As Isaiah says, our iniquities were laid upon Him on the cross. Our transgressions were placed upon Him. Jesus bore the wrath of the Father. That wrath which we deserve, we deserve to be crushed in the hands of God. Jesus takes that wrath on our behalf. That's what he says here. And by not by water only, but by water and blood. And then he says this, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is true. John starts giving his testimony and an example. He says, not just by water, the water doesn't just prove it to us, the blood doesn't just prove it to us, but also the Spirit proves to us. The Spirit testifies to testify. He declared that He truly was the Son of God. He declared it at His baptism as you have the Father. You have Christ being baptized. The Father says, this is my Son. He doesn't say you have become my Son. That's significant because that's something they would say. They would say that He became like God at that situation. No, He says, you are my Son. Same spirit that raised Christ is the same spirit that will raise you up again 
So our hope for redemption is the fact that Christ has been dead and raised to new life. We too will be dead and raised to new life. In our baptism, we are dead and brought back to life. We are made new in Christ Jesus. So the same hope that Jesus had is our hope. And that's the testimony. Just as sure as Jesus had the testimony of the Spirit, we have the same testimony. That's your hope. He says in verse 7, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. I don't think there's any Trinitarian things going on here. No one is what it's referring to when you see three in one and the three testifying. I think the significance of the three, I definitely do think there's a trinity. I don't mean you're saying that. What I'm saying is I don't think this passage is referring to this. I think the three that he's referring to and the one, the, the three agreeing is water, the blood, and the spirit. Why three? What's the significance of three? In the Old Testament, in order to have a valid testimony to prove the validity of something, you had to have three witnesses. And I think that's why he's saying three here. There's three witnesses, which proves that this is true. It's reiterating a point. We have three witnesses testifying that he truly was the Messiah. And he says this in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he was born concerning the Son. This is a lesser or greater argument. If we believe the testimony of men, on simple things, how can we not believe the testimony of God? By not believing the testimony of God, you're not trusting Him at His word. There's a famous uh, theologian uh, named Cornelius Van Til, and uh, he came up with uh, what's called the, the Father of Presuppositional Apologetics. Uh, if you ever want to research apologetics, he's definitely a go-to source on this kind of concept. If you're interested in the study of defense of the faith, um, he's one I highly encourage you to read, and his students as well, John Green and Greg Bachman, they're both great. But Cornelius Van Til, he just uses this analogy, and it, it relates to this next verse. Let me go ahead and read this next verse so I can show you the, the full context of it. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he does not believe the testimony that God exists concerning the Son. So, Van Til argues that somewhere in the Garden of Eden, you have the first taste of what's called naturalism. Naturalism is this idea that God doesn't exist and that uh, we in our own rational self can use the scientific method in order to prove everything. Van Til argues that in the Garden of Eden, you have the first taste of naturalism. You have the first taste of Eve, rather than obeying God's word and taking him at his word and trusting his testimony, trusting his word, Eve thought, I'm more intelligent than God. I know better than the Word of God. My knowledge and my, my sufficiency in myself is better than God's Word. So there you have the first taste of naturalism. You dis, they disobeyed the Lord because she thought she knew better than God. She thought her Word and her evidence was sufficient enough to defeat the Lord and His Word. So rather than trust Him, she disobeyed. I think we have the same thing here. He says, if we're willing to trust the testimony of men, how can we not trust God? God not greater than the testimony of men. There's all kinds of things that are agreed simply by the testimony of men. 
medication and learn not to talk to anybody. When you go to a pharmacist and you start, they research their medications. They, they know what they're putting in to the medication. They, they, you don't have to go and break down your medication and then research what exactly in it. So you take it and crush it upon your face. And there's many things in life that we do. When we buy food at the store and we go and we heat it up, we assume that which they say is in it is truly in it. All kinds of things we do is based on the testimony of men that we believe without question. It's perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But what John is saying is do you research what you don't believe the word of the Lord? Calling God a liar. This is an attack on the gospel. This is an attack on God's character. It's saying that you cannot trust the word of God. He is not trustworthy. That's what John is getting at. These things prove that he was the Messiah. Therefore, we need to trust God. Are you trusting God at his word? When a difficult situation comes up and you know what God has commanded you to do, do you think, God at his word and trust him when he says it. Do you think, hey, this may be a lifetime opportunity. I'm never going to have this opportunity again. I know if I compromise just a little with the word of God, then I'll still get this opportunity. I'll still be able to do these things that I want. God won't mind. It's just a one-time, it's a one-time thing. Do we think that what God has for us and his plan and his word and his obedience and obedience to him is not sufficient? Satan offers a better price, similar to Eve in the garden, when she says, is this real? Or when he says, is this what God really said? God is only saying this to you because he knows that you'll become like him. He challenges us. He causes us to question and to think, is God's word trustworthy? Can I trust it? And that's how he strikes once again. That's how the serpent strikes causes you to question whether God can be trusted. And this is the testimony of God that he gave to us, of eternal life. And this is the life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have his son does not have life. If you're going to be made new in Christ Jesus, you're going to be made new and experience this eternal life, you have to be united with Christ. Only through our union with him that you are saved.
know that he hears whatever we ask, and we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. There's a lot of confusion and difficulty here because we think he's saying that anything that we ask is going to be given. So when we pray, anything that we ask for is going to answer. I think the key to understanding that is according to the will of God. Anything that we ask, we will have according to the will of God. This means if your prayers are in the will of God, if we pray that God's will will be done, our prayers will be answered. A great example is in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. So if you pray in a difficult situation, and you're, you're currently struggling with something, you struggle to make it because of all these difficulties, and maybe the bills are stacking up, and you're like, I'm struggling to give thanks to the Lord in the midst of my trials. I'm struggling with this. And then you pray, Lord, help me be thankful during these times. That's God's will, for you to be thankful in all things, even when it's difficult. So if you're struggling with that, and you pray, God, give, help me be thankful during this time. That is God's will. He will answer that prayer. 1 Thessalonians 4, I remember the chapter earlier, it says, It is the will of God, or it is God's will, that you should be sanctified. So you're praying that God will mold you into His likeness to make you more, to grow spiritually, to become more like Him, to grow in your knowledge of Scripture. If you pray, Lord, sanctify me, that is a prayer He will answer. That is His will. This is what it looks like to pray according to the will of God. That means sometimes when we pray, we may not get our prayers answered. But if we pray according to His will, He will answer our prayers. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. For those who commit sins do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing sins. There is sin that does not lead to death. So this is a very difficult passage. If you've ever read through this, you probably get a little confused on, is he saying that we shouldn't pray for certain things or that there's certain things that um, lead to death, therefore we shouldn't pray for people? Two, two things, a couple things here. One, I think the first thing that he is saying, and I think what he is addressing, we need to keep in context of what he just said. Pray, God will answer your prayers. Pray according to His will. He will answer that prayer. Next, I think, who are these people that He's referring to? The prayer that there are certain sins that He commits that lead to death. I think what He's referring to is there are people within the church, this is what He's already addressed multiple times, and they have left the church following this false teaching. They are unrepentant. They are not repenting from their sins and coming back to the true message of God. They were a member of the church. doesn't mean that they were a believer. They were part of us, and they left, testifying that they are part, they are an antichrist. They don't believe the true message of Christ. They left us. So I think, first of all, what he's just talking about is unrepentant sin. That's the sin that leads to death. It's not physical death. I think it's eternal death. They've never repented. They're showing signs that they are never truly part of us. They're showing signs that they're never truly united to Christ. So first, I don't think this person is a believer. They will not repent. They're not turning from their sins. Second thing. So, the natural question is, do we pray for those who are unrepentant? 
Josh, I knew she didn't pray for those. Is that, is that who you're referring to when you're saying that we should not pray? She doesn't say do not pray for the sick. Which one did she say? I do not say that one should pray for Lazarus. What did you mean? You just said previously that God answers the prayers that are according to those, according to his will. He will answer those prayers. It's certain in that. Now he says, for unrepentant believers, I'm not saying you should pray for them. What he means by this, he's saying there is no confidence in our prayers. There's no certainty, or when I say confidence, there's no certainty that God will answer that prayer. If we have an unrepentant believer who's left the church, no longer following after the will of the Lord and living in sin, we can pray for those brothers. Pray for them. Pray that they repent and turn to the Lord. But there's no absolute certainty. We cannot know in our finite knowledge that God will restore them back to the faith. That's what he was saying. We cannot have certainty that this is God's will. We cannot have certainty that God will answer that prayer. We should pray for them. What I'm saying is we cannot know with certainty as we know praying according to God's will. We cannot know with certainty that, hey, we'll repent. I think that's what John's getting at. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. For other sins, we pray for brothers and sisters as they're struggling in sin, but there are certain sins that lead to death, and it's the eternal death. We know that everyone who's been born does not keep on sinning, but he who's been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This reminds me of the psalm from Psalm 32. Bless me, one who turns refuge to him, who sinners cover. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count as iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For I, when I kept silence, so listen to this, they're struggling in their sin, when I kept silence, my bones wasted away, through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. As we struggle in our sin, if we've not repented, this is how the psalmist describes it. If you're struggling, God's hand is heavy upon you. It is making you burdensome over your sin. You're feeling guilty. We've all been there. If you are a believer and you struggle in sin, God makes you feel guilty. He lays his hand, heavy hand upon you. For day and night your heavy hand was upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Verse 11. Now listen to this description. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What freedom there is in confession of one's sin. John says, if you keep on sinning, God is not in you. Confess your sin, and the evil one will leave you. He will prove his